Welcome back, everybody. This is Eric and Matt, and this is Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit, your beacon of freedom and the American way of life. Tune in every Friday for a new episode as we dive into the world of liberty and what makes our country great. All right, guys, welcome back. We have got another great podcast lined up here for you. I've got Matt here with me, my co-host. Hello. All right. And we have, again, our special guest. We've had him on the podcast before, Mr. Stephen Gutowski. Hey there. Uh, he is a writer for the Washington Free Beacon, a great journalist, really good guy, um, definitely a, a good voice in the gun world, especially when it comes to honest journalism and unbiased journalism. And we're very happy to have you back, Stephen. I keep, you can keep going. That's, uh, <laughs> man, I was enjoying that. That was very, <laughs> yeah, man. Pulitzer prize winner. No, <laughs> yeah. Not yet. Not Time yet. magazine awards, cover. Though. I was on the time. I was on the cover of Time. That's true. He was on the cover of Time. So, um, but no, in, I really appreciate you having me on. It's, it's yeah. So getting into today's podcast, what we want to talk about. Um, if you guys, you may recall a previous podcast where we kind of talked a little bit about some of Stephen's projects and some of the media bias uh, against gun owners and some of the journalistic approaches that you know people like him are taking to have honest reporting in the gun world. So if that's something you want to tune into, check out our previous podcasts on that. Today, I thought that we would get into the subject of what got us into guns. Um, mm, we all three have very different backgrounds, and I thought it'd be really interesting for everybody here to share their stories about how they got into guns and how gun culture um, permeated into your life, but also um, how it's affected your life, um, how you think it's going to affect you moving forward, like the kind of person you've become, what you will become, where you'll go, where you came from. I think it'd be an interesting paradigm to discuss our backgrounds. So, yeah, um, yeah man. Uh, I, I think since Stephen's our guest, I, I, I feel like he's going to have an interesting story. I think we should let him start off. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I, it's probably a little bit different than 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 your stories, maybe, because um, I I grew up, you know, I was I grew up near Philly, uh, but out in the you know in the suburbs, you know, kind of like kind of like where you live. It's like forty five, you know, a while out, a little bit outside the city, but not that far. I'm not out in the middle of nowhere, but. Uh, you know, Chester County, Pennsylvania is a very big, uh, gun owning, uh, area. Um, um, and I grew up, you know, going to school where you get the first day off for hunting season, that kind of thing. Wow. Okay. You know, Pennsylvania is very, very gun friendly. I like it. Um, nice. which they is know great. what they're doing over there, but a lot of hunters up there too. Oh yeah, absolutely. A lot of hunters, a lot of gun owners. It's very, 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 uh, active gun rights community in, in the state too. Um, but I will say that I, growing up, I was, that was never part of my life. Um, we had, my mom had a, uh, uh, an old squirrel gun, uh, like a 22 rifle, I guess it had literally a squirrel carved into the, oh, cool. into the stock, <laughs> uh, which she kept, I guess, as like a, like a deterrence in case someone broke in just that it was a gun a deterrent to the squirrels breaking in yeah i guess <laughs> right uh raiding the, the bird feeders <laughs> that, i think the idea was just that we had a gun we never right. shot it i never shot it she never you know we never went shooting um and although i do remember grabbing it one time uh when someone was coming up our driveway and i was like hmm i mean i guess i should grab that that gun i didn't know anything about it and and you know what honestly too i was I grew up kind of afraid of guns. Um, not, not afraid of like getting shot or anything like that. Um, you know, I grew up in like a small town area. There wasn't a lot of crime and not a lot of threat of that kind of stuff, but, uh, I was afraid of recoil. 
Um, I think that's sensitive. a super common yeah. thing for people who've never shot before, right? Because especially in TV and movies, like they really play up how much, oh, it's shooting gun and it's going to hurt you because oh, of the yeah. recoil. And then, so I'd never- Magnum. Right. Most powerful handgun ever made. <laughs> and I'd never shot a gun until after college, uh, until I, I got a job down in, in Virginia, uh, just outside of D.C., and we had, um, I remember, uh, I worked at a place called the Media Research Center, which is like a, a conservative media watchdog group. And, you know, I was writing writing stories for them. And they had this thing called Fun Day, right, where they would just take the whole staff and go and do something fun. Usually, like, you'd go to an amusement park, we'd go to King's Dominion or something like that, um, and ride roller coasters and stuff. But the first year that I was there, it was, um, it was out at... Brent Bozell is the guy who operates the place. It was at his, his mountain house. And it was just sort of like a bunch of team building activity kind of stuff, like fun party games sort of things. Um, and one of the activities was just skeet shooting um, or shooting, you know, just shooting sporting clays with, uh, they were just hand thrown and it was like a 12 gauge pump action shotgun. Mm -hmm. Like not what you would it's kind use. It's backyard fun. Level. Exactly. Like right. your, yeah. your very backyard, like uh, first time shooting, uh, you know, clays, pigeons kind of thing and it was just so much fun um now i you know years later now and as like a, i've become a nra certified instructor for i have the basic pistol certification i teach people to shoot all the time and stuff and i obviously wouldn't recommend starting someone on a 12 gauge right uh, but for me like uh, you know it's big enough frame where I don't, it, it didn't hurt like the recoil wasn't that wasn't that bad it wasn't a big deal it wasn't like what i'd imagine it to be and hitting those clays was so much fun you know, that it just sparked my interest at that point. And that's when I, I started like going down the rabbit hole, I guess. Like at first I, I bought a, so I bought a, 12, uh, I bought a shotgun, a pump action shotgun. I bought my first gun ever was an HR partner pump, 20 gauge with a 26 inch barrel that weighed probably like 20 pounds. Wow. <laughs> Super heavy piece of junk, like Chinese knockoff of an 870 you know, Remington 870. Well, at least the heavier gun helps with recoil. That's true. On the 20 gauge right. <laughs> that I bought because it had less recoil. 20 gauge is snappy. Yeah. But I, so that was my first gun. It's a total, it was like 250 bucks at Dick's Sporting Goods, right? Uh, so super embarrassing first gun. <laughs> right? If you think about it, because it's like not the right gun. Because I bought it for skeet shooting, which, I mean, if anyone who knows anything about sporting clays, like, that is probably the worst shotgun you could probably get for something like that. Um, right. It's certainly not any good for really anything, honestly. A, a 26-inch barrel pump action, 20-gauge. I don't even know what the right application for a gun like that even is, but it was 250 bucks, and that's what I had shot at the fun day. It was a pump action, so I was like, okay. And then, um, you know, from there, you just kind of learn as you go. Um I didn't have a lot of people in my life who were like big gun people. Um, and so I learned a lot from, from YouTube, um, and, and online, uh, and it just got more and more interested in it. And my first carry gun is also pretty embarrassing to be honest with you. Um, so a few years later I ended up buying a, uh, it was a SR, uh, 22, the Ruger SR 22, which great gun, right? Nice, nice little 22, um, handgun, but, uh, it's a not, bold move carrying a 22 not like a yeah a carrying a 22 uh without a round in the chamber that was mm. my first carry experience um 
just because it was like it's very you know and to be fair like for new new people getting into guns and then getting into carrying it, it you know it's it's it can be scary or you can be you can have like a heightened level of concern when you haven't done it before and you don't have a lot of experience and so all right i'll i'll carry this 22 and you know later on i moved up to a I got an, a Smith and Wesson shield in, in 40. And mm-hmm. so it got closer to like the polar a opposite gun. of a 22. <laughs> yeah. You have like 20 yeah. to 40. <laughs> yeah. The, four, the Smith and Wesson shield in that movie shield in 40 is uh, very snappy, but I, I, I carry a, an XDS in nine now. So it's much, there you go. much yeah. more normal, uh, much more of your, what you'd expect these days. And I'm probably going to switch to like a, maybe a three, six, five XL or, yeah. or a Hellcat. I'm not sure yet. That that gun has has got me going right now. I love the three sixty five a lot. I yeah, I have a three six five. So I I had I see I bought my three six five like right after it came out. And so if you recall back a lot of these sub you know, subcompacts have issues when they first drop on the market. And yeah. that the three six five is definitely among those. And so mine has the issue of uh, light primer strikes. Have you sent it back to get it? I haven't. I should. I need to see this. I've been lazy about it because I have. Yeah. The, I carry the XDS, and I'm like, this gun's great and works great, and I still like this gun. Shoots great. I, I do like shooting the X the 365 a little better. I think it's a, a nicer gun. I like the capacity. capacity. You know, you definitely get good generous capacity, and the oh, gun and is come really the slim considering that it still uses double oh, yeah. stack mags. You oh, would it's think crazy. it would be a lot. That fatter. thing's it's like really the clown car of guns. Yeah. That th- I mean, I'm always impressed by how i mean now springfield has sort of copied it with the hellcat and they, they're able to get a lot of capacity out that of the pistol appears to have been very well vetted too I yeah mean, like they've really did test that hellcat a lot oh. i haven't shot one yet but it seems it, like a it doesn't gun. seem to have any serious flaws like you saw with like the first iteration of the xds or the or the 365 or the or even the shield had some issues when it first when sure. it first came out so like um you know, that does seem like they put a little more maybe R and D into the Hellcat before they actually started selling it. So that's, that's always good. But, um, but you know, so that, that's how I got into it was just like, I'd never shot a gun until after college, which I think a lot of people now who know me for, for gun, my writing on guns and, uh, you know, all the stuff I do now, cause I go and shoot machine guns all the time. And I do, you know, I have, uh, I like to build ARs. I like to do all kinds of the fun things that, you know, gun guys yeah, are into. You're a gun guy. Right. Uh, and so people don't know that that's only developed in the last decade or so of my life. You know, before that I was not into guns at all. I was afraid of them really. So. And I do believe common. it's a cultural thing. Yeah. It happens over time for some right. people. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's very common. I think if you ask the, you know, the majority of gun owners, um, very few were like indoctrinated at a very young age where they grew up around it. It became more of like a self-awakening where they are like, hey, I'm old enough uh, to shoot this or they get that first experience at the Mm. gun range or at a team building event. Sporting clays is a great way for for the youth to get into it. Um, is that anything with a reactive target? You know? It's instant gratification. You, you know what like, I? You know what you I see point it. people to as like this is kind of counterintuitive. I think for a lot of people uh, who've never been to a place like this, but I think beginners, if you don't have like somebody who's really experienced that you can go with yourself, um, or you know maybe you know you could always take a class, and that's always a fantastic option with a you know a certified instructor. But if you just want to go, and I want to experience shooting and have fun, and I haven't done it before. I actually think the machine gun attractions are the best place to do it because, uh, which is counterintuitive, right? Cause like machine guns, you got to have a certain level of like, 
ability to control, you know, a sub gun or something. Mm-hmm. Those guys but, are pretty good about but you go coaching to the, you. That's exactly right. That's why I think it's best because you can go there. You have all those machine gun attraction places in Vegas or, or Orlando. Or it's, there's a bunch around the country. Yeah, they're right? not just going to turn you loose. Yeah. Right. They, first of all, they know the liability that comes along with, with letting strangers shoot machine guns. So they will send a, every shooter has an RSO with that, that individual person. And yeah. so, so every time I've been, I've always thought this is actually pretty good for someone who doesn't know anything about shooting. Cause you can come in, you can shoot, uh, I mean, usually they'll have a, a range. It won't just be just machine guns. And so you can try out, you know, your normal semi-auto stuff. And then you can go up to the machine gun f- for the extra level of fun. Because that's one of, the, one of the things that brought me into it when I started on that fun day was how, how much fun it was to shoot a reactive target that actually something happens when you hit it. You know, yeah. the clay pigeon disintegrating when you hit it is a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, more fun than, uh, you know, than just shooting poles and paper. Um, and, and so if you can do like steel targets or, or clay pigeons or machine gun, um, that's done and you do it responsibly, like that's a really good way to get someone into shooting because it shows them like how much fun it can be. Yeah. It's almost like a, it's like a mini game while you're learning because you're tracking that clay as it goes across and you did like a, you did a hand thrown clay, which is, which is great to start with, Mm -hmm. but then you can get into some really cool stuff like the crazy quail. Oh my yeah. God. Have you ever shot a crazy that quail thing before? It is awesome. I no, I don't think so. What is that? So this They're is like absolutely a, yeah. insane. So imagine it, it, it's like a little box and it's got like five or six arms that throw clays and it's random. So, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you the put it out there throws, yeah. and it'll just, it'll throw all these, uh, these clays in the air and you're sitting there just tagging them and you're, and you're using a semi. So you're, oh, you're just nice. letting, you're letting loose on it. And man, that thing is so much fun. I got to experience it. Uh, it's at ridiculous. A range day. Yeah. So it has a, so there's a, um, application you download on your uh, iPad and there's a display on the iPad that shows the fan of fire basically of the, of the crazy quail machine. Uh-huh. So it's still got a single thrower. It just works really fast, and the machine self-articulates and throws it wherever you choose to throw it on the on the app. Right. So if I if I want to throw one high left, I just swipe. That like sounds playing, awesome. Like playing Fruit Ninja, I can just yeah. swipe, and then the machine goes, and it throws it whatever direction I swiped it in, and it, I can swipe as fast as I want. Yeah. So if I want the machine to throw five clays in the air in like a split second from each other, I just go swipe, 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 and it just goes and throws them wherever i just swiped it's insane i've done um i've done like uh there's a there's a public range out in uh, manassas virginia where like bull run the 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 famous battle that's near that's pretty close to dc but but uh you know they have a sporting clays range that's you know it's like golfing but with shotguns right right and i think that's also another really good one for for because if you can get like a if you can go with them and you know what you're doing or you can get an instructor to go along with you uh, which a lot of these places will have instructors for You're kind of so, marrying a normal activity. Yeah. So it kind of makes it more And it's familiar. like fun. It's just it's just more fun than taking them to an indoor range. I mean, not, there's nothing wrong with going to an indoor range, obviously. Like, I go all the time. It's a different dynamic. It's, it's a bit aggravating. There's a little if, more fun involved, in I there. think, when you're shooting, uh, like, reactive targets of yeah. any kind, really. I mean, you know, you can get the bleeding paper targets, and you can get the at least the, like the targets that show you the little hole that you make. Yeah, like a visibly. shoot and see or yeah, dirty yeah, yeah. bird or something. Right, exactly. Cool. And those can be better. But I, I just wanted to say a uh, good correction. It's got five or six uh, magazine holders for the, for yes. the sporting clay. It is a so, high capacity yes, that's clay machine. It, it holds a it lot of clay. And it's like, it looks like a just giant revolver. It's, it's really awesome. If you guys get the opportunity, yeah. 
try it. And that's another way that I think maybe I'm, uh, my experience is a little different than maybe you guys or, or, uh, some of the listeners too, is that, you know, I live, uh, you know, 20 minutes outside of DC and I mean, I'm in Virginia, so I can still own all the different guns that I want to own at this point. We'll see where the politics of that yeah, for now, <laughs> for now, uh, uh, they couldn't pass that assault weapons ban in, in Virginia this year, but unless the elections change, you know, that's probably coming at some point. But anyway, for now I can own anything I want. Um, and maybe I'll move back to Pennsylvania if that changes, but, yeah. but I live, you know, relatively close to a city. There's most of my options for shooting are also fairly limited in terms of like most of the ranges in the area that are within like 45 minutes of me are, are indoor ranges and they're relatively short indoor range like there's some very nice ones they've got some you know one of those what they call like country clubs right they've got the they've got a couple of those in the area that are very nice indoor ranges but but it does limit me to some degree and the kind of guns that i'm into are are limited because of that so i'm not shooting a lot of long range uh you know rifles i'm shooting a lot more of the intermediate uh stuff and a lot more handguns and shotguns um, then, then maybe people who have the space on their own property go shooting or so, stuff like that, you know, where you can have, you can buy one of those, what's it called? What's the crazy quail, crazy quail, where you could buy one of those and set up on your property. Like, I'd love to have something like that. You but definitely got to have room because yeah. this sucker will throw them in yeah. a huge spread. Like, and the machine articulates and moves at, mm-hmm. so it's not just one static position that you're throwing into. It'll, it, it will tilt fore and aft and rotate. You know, and yeah. I believe a pretty pretty extreme yeah. uh, rotational degree. And the thing about it is, it will also tilt back and shoot the clays up high in the air, away. Like it's really, really. Yeah, fancy. I mean, I'd love I'd love to be able to have access to like a like a Hickok forty five range he's got in his backyard. Well, whatever, we all right? Yeah. right? But uh, you know, I'm I'm limited in in that. I'm I'm living in like a more exurban area where it's I live in an apartment. I don't have like uh, that, the ranges I have access to are indoor ranges that are maybe 50 yards if you're lucky. That's tough. So it, it's it's just a different experience, you know. And you're and and I'm different. I'm into like that that sort of more uh, self defense competition shooting side of things than like the hunting side of things. Um, and so, so like my experience probably differs a lot from maybe from your guys' experience too, um, uh, in how I came up and how, and how things go for me now too. Well, and I think just to, you know, go back to the, the sporting clays, I think there is a, a differentiation between the youth getting into that because there's like when you, the, I guess the, the escalation of the career path is there are, there is professional Olympic trap shooters and Olympic level ski shooters and sporting clay. But you don't see that at the Olympic level as far as like three gun or shoot steel. You don't like, what do you get? You get, you get air pistol, like 50 meter air pistol, air rifle, but you don't see that unless, I mean, even like when you look at the Nordic, like the Olympic games, you have, it's like air rifle with the, with the little skiing competition, whatever it's called. Um, But I, I think if they were to normalize that, you'd see a lot more of the youth get into that. Um, and that's what I'd like to see as well. So, yeah. all right. I guess something I want to add to that. Yeah. Okay. So you guys might, may or may not be familiar, familiar with Kim road. Mm-hmm. So this is coming directly off, uh, Wikipedia. All right. So Kim road, um, let's see all American double trap and skeet shooter. She's a California native, but get this six time Olympic medal winner, including three gold medals. 
yep. in that field. Um, six-time national champion in double trap. She's the most successful female shooter at the Olympics as the only triple Olympic champion and oh, the yeah. only woman to have won two Olympic gold medals, medals for double trap. Not one peep out of the media. Yep. Mm. Woman, a woman accomplishes such a great feat, and mainstream media, you know, back when, when, when that occurred, completely silent. Right. Of course, the gun industry applauded her and people like us, but it's so odd to see that, and this is getting away from the subject matter, but it, it is messed up that a lot of these athletes don't get the respect they deserve in the shooting sports being a functional and real sport that is worth yeah. undertaking as a serious thing, you know, an well, Olympic I mean, sport. So you have the Olympic sports side, but also look at like just the professional shooting in general. Like you have Max Michel, you have Jerry Michelek. Those are like very, very accomplished shooters, like world champion shooters. And you would think that, you know, they would be household names because they've done so much for uh, the because they compete internationally as well. But nobody knows who they are. I'd like to add something, too. So you were mentioned earlier about, you know, getting people into shooting and that machine guns would be a good option. Mm -hmm. And I think that's cool. There definitely is a fun factor that must occur, I believe, for especially young people to get into shooting. Uh, There's got to be some fun takeaway, right? Um, I found in my experience that one of the best guns to start somebody out with in terms of a young shooter, especially, is a suppressed twenty two. Yes, sir. Because you get rid of the recoil. Mm-hmm. So there's absolutely no recoil. There's no noise. So you're getting rid of the noise. Some people, you know, you, especially if you go to an indoor range and you shoot a real loud handgun, it's even louder indoors. That's why I said it was so aggravating. Oh, yeah. It got, can be aggravating, yes. you know. So yeah. having a suppressed twenty two is a great way to, to train people because you don't have to wear ear pro. You can just tell them, hey, do this, do that, and you can walk them through it. And especially if you combine that with some steel targets. Mm-hmm. It is so fun to hear a suppressed twenty two mm-hmm. hit a steel target, oh, and it's yeah. very fulfilling. Yeah, anything you know, especially reactive, for a young right? person. I mean, anything that reacts when you hit it is going to be more fun. I think you know, and a little goes cost. You're not going to spend as much money. I was going to say yeah. a little goes a long way. You can take your your kid out if you're trying to teach your kid to shoot. You can take him out there with like one brick of twenty two and a bolt and yeah. a bolt gun, and you could spend a ton of time out there because yeah. you're like hey, twenty bucks worth of ammo. Yeah. You can shoot for hours. Yeah, yeah. whenever I'm teaching, like I, you know, whenever I do the basic pistol course or. Whatever, you know, for, for, uh, mainly I teach my colleagues at the free beacon, right. It's sort of like a perk of, of employment <laughs> that you get to take a free, uh, basic pistol course. But, but, uh, you know, I always start out with the 22. That's why I was like, when I said like me, my first shooting experience being a 12 gauge shotgun, I wouldn't do that with a, with a new shooter. Like it worked out great for me, but, but a new shooter, like I, you know, you start them off, you show them the technique on the, on a gun that's easier to handle and has less noise and less recoil. Uh, and then they can apply that, you know, as you move up to the nine millimeter or 45 or whatever, uh, same thing with, you know, shotguns and, and, and rifles as well. You, you start on a, a 10 22 and then you move up to an AR and mm-hmm. it's a little bit easier for them to, to make that transition, I think. Well, make no mistake about it as Eric has dutifully recorded in previous videos, a 22 will quote, kill the crap out of you yes. <laughs> it will don't make it no can, mistakes sure, about yeah. it 22 should still be treated with respect yeah. i mean it, any firearm no matter what it is should be given the respect it deserves absolutely you should treat every single gun as if you know it, it, don't think about oh it's not as powerful everything gets the same respect doesn't mm-hmm. matter if it's a 20 millimeter solo thern or if it's a 22 you, you treat them all mm-hmm. with the same respect um 
so there's definitely a lot of nuances to how people get into guns at a young age, yeah. um, how it lives with them throughout their life. I mean, so so how did, how did you guys get into it? Well, what I was going to ask you is yeah. to kind of close the the session with uh-huh. like your background. So you got into writing about two yeah. A subjects. So obviously you've become very passionate about the Second Amendment because right. you write about it. So where do you see that taking you, and and what made you kind of want to go that route? Well, you know, it's interesting because I started off writing about politics like in the end of high school into college, and I started my own publication in college, and that's that's how I was able to get you know noticed and hired in D.C. Because um, I went to a small Christian school up in in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, uh, Messiah College. Uh, actually, they just changed their name to Messiah University, so I don't know if my my uh, degree is worth more now or not. Nice. But, uh, so I hope so. But uh, but I you know I started my own publication and I was writing about politics a lot. And then as I got into guns as like a hobby or you know, something that I was personally interested in, then I began writing more about that. And, um, when I moved to the free beacon full time, uh, about five, five years ago, six years ago, um, the free beacon likes to have beat reporters, like people who focus on a specific issue. And, and so that was sort of a natural fit for me as I became more and more interested in, in firearms and owned more guns and, started building ARs and, you know, carrying guns and, and all that stuff and being becoming more knowledgeable about the pol- the, the laws and the politics surrounding firearms uh, on the national level. And that's how I got into what I'm doing now, which is mainly co- almost completely focused on firearms. Well, they must reporting. obviously care about firearms, at least from the aspect of honest reporting sure. in order to have someone dedicated to just that yeah. subject on the beat. And so, uh, so that's how I got to where I'm at now. You know, it just sort of, uh, they can do think the two things kind of converged into one, um, with my writing and my, my interest in guns. Um, and then I think going forward, you know, I'm, I'm hoping to do a lot more, um, with the show, the show that I do uh, range time, you know, I'd like to, to do more episodes of that or maybe do like a, a some sort of cable run on, on TV with that. It'd be great if that could happen. Um, maybe get into, I've been considering writing a book as well, um, especially on, um, you know, gun culture 2.0, I guess is the, the phrase that you hear, right. That refers to like gun owners, new generation of gun owners becoming like more, um, le- you know, more suburban and urban, more, you know, more minorities, more, um, uh, people, females, more women, more, uh, people who are, shifting more towards a self-defense aspect of firearm ownership over, you know, hunting, you know, you're getting this new generation of, of people that, um, have different priorities and look different in the terms of their makeup. Um, and I think that's really interesting topic because a lot of, there's still a lot of thought out there that like gun ownership is just relegated to like, you know, rural white people who like to hunt. And it's not really true. I mean, it was never really true, but it's especially becoming less and less true. It's definitely becoming yeah. more apparent that gun ownership encompasses a much wider demographic of people than exactly. previously thought. And and especially with in 2020 with this huge surge of new gun owners, which we've seen, um, you know, survey reports of dealers saying like 58% of uh, their, their newest customers are African-American, um, you know, that that's their largest growing demographic. Um, uh, and women as, as well are one of the largest growing demographics in, in gun ownership in the country. And so that's 2020 has just kind of accelerated all of that. 
Um, Maybe a lot of people were on the fence, and now they're like, you know what, i got to take matters into my own hands and protect myself because the police obviously can't. And I think there's a lot of interesting stories in there that, you know, maybe a book or, you know, obviously I I write about it that on a sort of serial basis for the Free Beacon um, where I've interviewed a lot of these people, a lot of these new gun owners, and I think there's just so much more um, to pursue there. And so that's that's what I want to do coming up here. So, Matt, let's get into your background a little bit. So... Steven's got an interesting upbringing. So tell, tell yeah. us about how you got into guns. So my my journey began when I was a wee lad. Um, Just a tiny top so, boy. Yes. So I've actually, and you can ask like, my entire family, I was the gun kid, like just obsessed with guns. Um, and it started, honestly, um, it was a, a TV thing. I mean, I grew up as a child watching A-Team watching tour of duty yeah that's like man tour of duty was my jam he turned man. on the tv and he saw the roof koreans yeah that's what did it for him i mean just ev- anything that was anything like, like action guns um i mean that's what i grew up with and yes you could say that was bad parenting for letting a child watch tour of duty but i don't care um and those are some of the most memorable times uh just learning about that and just seeing it but just growing up, I always it was toy guns, all that. Guess my my biological father. Um, we lived in rural South Carolina uh, growing up, and we lived in the kind of land where it was like a it was a really really old house. I mean, that house had like a fireplace in every room. It was just one of those old school like Civil War type houses, like plantation style houses, um, wraparound porch on all four sides of the house, um, well, all that good stuff, but. It was a type of house where you could, you know, shoot ducks flying over with a shotgun. So you'd see ducks coming, and uh, guess what? Dad would say, hey, go get the shotgun. Go get the shotgun in a case of shells. And that's, you know, you'd beat feet, get in there, and next thing you know, boom, boom, boom. You got ducks falling on, on, on your yard. So um, that was one of our, like, you know, I guess weekend activities. He'd sit out there in a lawn chair. I'd hold the shells, and he'd let some go. With them, with them flying over, he'd hand it to me. I'd reload it for him, give it back to him. Um, I never actually got to... F- I was so young. I mean, honestly, like I was doing that probably at around five or six years old. I wasn't quite old enough to, to shoot. Um, so I never actually got to shoot at that age. And then my family, this, that side of the family, they my, my grandfather was a retired FBI agent, retired South Carolina uh, you know, Highway Patrol um, retired Navy. So, I mean, just a military guy. So he was all, he, he wasn't into guns, but he didn't try to steer me away from it. Um, you better no, believe a, he knew how to use one. Oh yeah. I had a similar, similar thing too. My grandfather was a, um, he was a, a police officer for his whole career right. and, uh, he was, he was in, um, the military both my grandparents, both my grandfathers were, but, but they also weren't like gun guys yeah either. they weren't super like i mean my my grandfather was uh he was he fought in world war ii in the navy um he was on a battle he was on not a battleship but he was on a ship we never really talked too much about it but he was like hey this is like most most old timers man they're not eager to to share those types yeah. of experiences um but you know he didn't steer me away from it my um you know my uncle one of my uncles uncle david if you're listening hi uh he moved out to uh missouri um, so big hunter, like, you know, lots of land out there. Um, my uncle Steve, hi, uncle Steve. Uh, he's probably listening. He tells me he's listening. Um, 
He was a, a Navy vet, uh, but he's not, again, he's not a gun guy either. Um, so it's just weird how that, like, nobody really steered you away. They understood, like, the importance of it, but they weren't like, no, no guns, guns are bad. Yeah. Um, and then I, I just never, I never really culminated that after I started growing up. And then I joined the military, and that's when I got my first, like, hey, man, this is some really cool stuff. Unfortunately, it was, like, the military-grade cool, like, not the kind of cool you can buy when you're out of the military. <laughs> not like, easily, anyway. Yeah, yeah like, you know, easy. hand grenades and claymores and AT4s and, like, all, like, you know. Things two, yeah, that two, explode four, in yeah, there. Yeah, 240s, Bravos. I mean, guys, if you never got to see an AT4 go off. That's kind of cool. Especially a real H-E, yes, you know. a real one, because, I mean, it's like a cartoon. Like, you see it leave, and then you see the explosion. You don't hear anything. And then, like, three seconds later, you hear it, and you're like, oh, that's like a, that's crazy. Uh, the first time I saw a Claymore mine go off, dude, I was, I was like, oh, my God, yes. Oh, yeah, man. So awesome. Yeah. So, uh, that was my first experience with, like, getting into that type of, like, that type of stuff. And again, unfortunately it's military grade. Yeah. So it was a great experience. Um, but fortunately we did deploy. So we got to play with all those cool toys again for a very long time. Um, and then you get out of the military and you're like, I got this civilian stuff. It's kind of like a watered down version. It still works. <laughs> um, it gets the job done. Um, but then, you, you know, my first rifle, um, the, my own, my first, First personal rifle was a Colt a M4, so it was an actual Colt uh, M4. Pretty, I think I paid like, you know, this was back in like 2000, had to be like 2005 or 2006. That's like um, right after the band expired. Yeah, it was like 1200 bucks um, for like a work wow. more than that. Yeah, <laughs> like a legit Colt. And I sold yeah. it to my friend, and man, I'm kicking myself in the butt for that. Um, but that was a really solid rifle. Um, and it treated me well. Uh, and then after that, honestly, I never was in, I was never like carry every day because I wasn't carrying a handgun every day. I was more of like a rifle kind of guy. Um, because in the army, you, you know, as much as you'd like to say that you are familiar with all weapons, as like an infantry guy, you didn't really get to handle a, a sidearm that way. It wasn't part of our MTO. Um, sure, if you were like a NCO or an officer, that was their MTO. They they got they got issued that. I got issued a 240 Bravo and an M4. Like that was right. it. So I was lugging around a freaking machine gun across yep. Iraq. <laughs> and I was the Modus guy. And you got so issued I, a Modus, an M16A4, and a Modus. Yep. And technically, I was a gunner on 120 millimeter mortar, so yeah. that was technically my responsibility yep. too. And I mean, we got M4s just because we were in the turret, and you couldn't have a a long rifle gun up in the turret. I had a full length rifle. You, I didn't I, have an M4. Well, I had an M16A4. Well, I believe you requested that because you liked it better um, right i prefer the shorty um and i that wanted was, the velocity yeah um <laughs> you were way more into it at that time than i was i just took what they gave me because they said you couldn't like you like it was easier for us to get in and out of the turret uh with that short rifle um and then you know it was great and then you get back so i always just used a rifle and then i would probably say the last Last three or four years or so is really when I was like, I should really start caring. I, and it coincided with the birth of my daughter. And it was just one of those things where like you're out in public and you got so much stuff going on. I want to be able to protect her. Like 
mm-hmm. no matter what. And the last thing I want is to be caught out, you know, shopping or something, and someone tries to, you know, get you for something. What are you going to do? Just put your hands up? Yeah, you, you feel know? a moral obligation, a moral Absolutely. responsibility to be a father and protect your, and, your, and your that's, wife and your kids. Exactly. You know? And that's what it was. You know, I was like, man, I got to, I got to, be able to protect myself and my family and do what I have to do to make sure my family is safe. And ever since then, I've just been a huge proponent of, um, you know, being your own first responder. So being able to protect yourself and carry your medical gear and sure. all that stuff. Yeah. And it, some people think it's overkill and like, oh, you don't need medical. You don't need a plate carrier. Like, man, you don't, you, you never know. I would rather be a, gar- uh, a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war. So, 100%. you know, that's my philosophy. So before we get too much further, I, I, I don't know if maybe you were going to talk about this, but I, I don't want to push the conversation in this direction. But for those of the folks that are listening that don't know, tell them about Ballistic Inc. and why we, why we did that and what our vision is for that. Okay, so Ballistic Inc. Um, was... Shameless plug, by the way. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it, it is... Um, pertinent because it does it's specifically for the two-way community um, and it was designed wholly f- to support two-way content creators this was really built um, essentially not as a means to get rich uh, we do operate our a separate company that's our main business this kind of spurred when um, I you know I called you up Eric and was like hey um, would you Originally, it was just to do some advertising. I was like, hey, do you want advertising my my family business on your channel? And it turned into, hey, why don't you just do my merch? So we started doing your merch. and It, it, it turned, worked out great. Yeah, it worked out great. And then I started thinking, like, well, what can I do to help, you know, you and who every, everybody else in the community? And, you know, we came together and we thought about creating a company that is really designed to provide income to other content creators that have been demonetized. So if you actually look across the board on our partners, um, it is specifically uh, gun tubers or people that are in the two-way community. It's a very diverse group. Yeah, um, but it's all with one single point in mind. You know, we don't, we don't, not that we don't want to support other content creators, but, you know, if you're like, uh, you know, somebody else that does content, your videos are monetized. You're making money off of those. You don't really need this to be uh, profitable. But when you look across the board, a lot of these guys, this is their life. They are, they're willing to take a pay cut because essentially they're creating content for no money for those uh, that want to consume it and they're not really getting anything out of it. So, well, it definitely provides a great conduit for people who enjoy the content to be able to support their favorite content correct. creators. I mean, let, we all love buying T-shirts. Right. So with the T-shirts and the beanies and the hats and the hoodies and all the different merch that we carry, again, shameless plug. But when you purchase from Ballistic Inc., you're helping out our family, you're helping out the company, but you're helping out your favorite content creator. So I guess to push things full spectrum, fast forward to now in your timeline – you're getting to a point where you know you're supporting the 2A community and you're actually an avid member of the 2A community in terms of supporting your fellow content creators and ultimately helping them put out more content which in the big scheme of things helps uh, the entire uh, community at large correct sure. and let's not make uh, let's not sidestep it all the partners are getting paid the lion's share of those purchases. So, you know, when you when you buy something on Ballistic Inc., the lion's share of those funds are going outside of what it actually costs to make it. 
go to that content creator. That's awesome. Well, cool. So I guess that leaves me. Mm, I got to oh, talk about yes. my background. So it's funny that I, I actually haven't discussed this that much. Like people would would think that I have, you know, because with our channel on YouTube, and and for those of you listening, maybe you don't know, but it's Iraq Veteran eighty eight eighty eight on YouTube. We we've got we got a little YouTube channel, a couple just of, a little, a couple <laughs> of people on there follow us, some two point five million or so. And I think we've gotten like six hundred million lifetime views on our, cha- on our channel. So we've been at it a while, and I don't think I've ever really discussed like what got me into guns and everything. But I, I'm kind of your stereotypical, you know, rural redneck. Okay, I mean, I grew up around guns from the time I was a little kid. I remember there being a gun in a random corner, but not in some unceremonious, you know, disrespectful way, right? You know, my parents, my grandparents always taught me, hey, you don't touch that dang thing. You know what I mean? I was taught from a very young age to respect guns. And um, I remember shooting guns at a very, very young age, like maybe even four or five years old. I mean, nice. I, I had my first, you know, BB gun or, you know, pellet gun or whatever. Gosh, when I was old enough to walk and carry one. So I've been exposed to firearms technology in one way or the other my just about my entire life. And I've been hunting since I was about eight. So, I bet, you know, my first deer I killed when I was about eight years old. So I've been at it a long time. I mean, I come from a hunting background. My, my both on both sides of my family, uh, both sets of grandparents, very much into self reliance, very much into hunting, uh, and everything like that. So I was lucky to have uh, essentially a classical education in the way of guns because I grew up in a staunchly uh, Republican, pro gun, pro conservative Christian. Uh, household, right? So, you know, I grew up in in your stereotypical red-blooded conservative American household. You know, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, hold the door open, help little old ladies across the street, that kind of thing. Like very traditional, very gentlemanly way of treating people. And that was just the way I was raised, you know, growing up. And of course, you know, I took my, my love for guns, you know, to different levels than some people might have taken their love for guns, right? So, you know, when I was growing up, as a, as a young kid, I always wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to be an educator. I wanted to, you know, I always picture myself being like the cool history teacher in the Harris Tweed jacket, like going, you know, like going in and showing up late and like... With the pipe. Like, yeah, exactly. Hmm. Like I always pictured myself as some, you know, some teacher patches. or yep. some right. some like professor, you know. I don't know. Like this is the way I just treated my passions was that, man, I'm so passionate about this given subject that I could totally be that guy because I, I totally immerse myself into what that particular idea might be, right? Yeah. Let me stop you right there. I will tell you, you did fulfill that role in, when we were in the unit because you would, you would literally give Im, like, impromptu classes on weapons, disassembly, <laughs> like better than, any, they, better than the actual classes. So how to disassemble, you know, uh, modules, like stuff, 240s, yeah. like all, all that stuff, man. It was well, awesome. you're still doing that today with the, with the YouTube channel too. Right. So fast forward kind of closer to now. I mean, obviously there was the military exposure that I had. And of course you get to play with all kind of cool things in the military and, and what red blooded American doesn't like that. I mean, oh, machine yeah. guns and mortars and, you know, claymore mines and AT4s hand and hand grenades, grenades and oh, yeah, all man. these wonderful things that, that we wish we could have in the civilian world. Yeah. And then, you know, when I got out of the service and just getting more into the civilian world, 
you know, I, I kind of felt an emptiness and it was back in like the real early days of YouTube when they were first starting to accept, um, you know, people and what at the time, what they called their partners program. A lot of people don't know this. I'm kind of giving away a little tiny secret. When YouTube initially started monetizing channels, okay, they initially only had 50 experimental slots that they were going to give out to 50 content creators to join their partners program. I was one of the first 50 monetized YouTube channels. Wow. A lot of people don't know that. I didn't know that. And I I try not to make a big deal about it because I don't want YouTube to hear this and go, wait a minute, we got to screw this guy (laughs) over. But seriously, though, this was back when YouTube was still in its infancy. Yeah. Right. And back when YouTube was YouTube, it wasn't owned by Google at the time. Google purchased YouTube later on. This is when it was just YouTube was YouTube. Right. And it was real early in the days of YouTube. They had only been around like maybe a couple of years. Okay. Because they've been now, I think, what, they're on year 15 now. They've been around about 15 years. They were only around a couple of years before I, st- I opened an account. So then they reached out to me, and I, and I, it's funny, I don't have the email. I wish I did. I, I think it was on an older account or whatever. But anyway, what's so cool about it is I got a, an email from YouTube, and it wasn't like some mass-produced or mass-syndicated email. It was like a direct email from a person at YouTube Hey, we're starting up this new program. We want to know if you're interested. You know, we saw your content. We think it's cool. We like it. We'd love to have you, you know, in this partners program. Total 180 from what you would experience today. And there's no yeah. way they would extend that now. Yeah. But we were we were one of the first 50. And we were putting out some great content. Kind of crude and slapstick there early in the beginning. But it was genuine. It was honest. And I think that's what people really appreciate about it was its honesty. It's, it's honesty in terms of our attention to giving it the attention it deserves, but also being honest and truthful with ourselves and truthful with our viewers and just letting our viewers determine, we're not trying to put, you know, ideas in someone's mind and, and, and think for them. All we're trying to do is present the information in a way that makes it a little easier for them to make the decision they want to make. And that's been our, our mantra from day one is just to try to, you know, present things in a way that is that is truthful and honest and that allows people to just make their own decisions. We're not trying to put words in their mouth and we're just trying to present things in a way that we hope will help them make a decision, you know. Right on. Absolutely. So that's kind of been our mantra. I mean, we've, we've been on YouTube now for almost 13 years. So um, we've been doing, uh, Chad and I both have been doing this full time. I think we're in year six right now. Uh, so about six years full time, maybe maybe five or six years, but it's been a, been a minute. So um, it's it's been a weird transition. You know, that moment when you quit your full time job, right. when your wife quits th- her full time job, when your cameraman, in this case, Chad, you know, co-host slash cameraman, when Chad quits his job. And you realize that you wake up that day and you and you go, you know what? There ain't no paycheck coming. It's just me. It's just us. It's just what we've done here and how we're going to try to make it work. So yeah. it's never the initial approach to go, oh, well, I'm going to start a big old YouTube channel and be famous one day. That was never the intention. It wasn't at all. It was just us documenting things that we already happened to be doing and what we were enjoying doing. And we just want to share it with people. And that is the core of YouTube. That's why YouTube exists is for people who just want to document things and share it with people can gather an audience and then share their ideas and their, their life experiences with other people. And that's how it really started at its core. Hmm. Now, obviously today it's grown into, you know, I, I hate to use the word business, 
but it has grown into sort of a business because it's what we do for a living. So we have to respect it with the sanctity of being something that puts food on our table, right? Um, but at the core of what we do, we're still just dudes with a camera doing our thing, making videos, and just trying to make a, as good of a run of this as we can. And, and we like spreading the message of the Second Amendment in the most positive way we can. And we like to try to be ambassadors to the Second Amendment community. And uh, it, I would say probably not to toot our own horn or to have a shameless plug for the channel, but I feel like we did a great job of normalizing guns to a huge audience and making gun owners look like just average people. So for us, we've always tried to just appear, because we are, just average dudes that just happen to really like guns. So I, I think that's kind of where we're at now. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's exactly exactly right. I will go on to say that you know the difference between your content and some other channels' content is that you cater to a little bit of everybody. So you have some great like entry level novice you know gun content. You have some great um, you know medium level intermediate content, and you have some expert stuff like the gunsmithing things that you wouldn't necessarily get. Uh, the novice would be yeah. interested in. So you kind of have a very large library to choose from. Um, which helps because you have, I know we had a, you know, level on, um, and he, he does a lot of great work getting those new, uh, gun owners into the community and then they'll search that, all right, well now that, you know, I'm in, what's the next step? So then they start searching for content. And since your catalog is so large, you always kind of rise to the top as far as different stuff. Cause he'll have, you know, someone might be searching Sega. Oh, what's a Sega shotgun? Bam. You know, you might have two or three videos that are covering different yeah. different stuff. Algorithmic so. diversity. Yes. Yeah. You know, really exactly pushing a lot of it. That's why this recent batch of account strikes has hurt us so badly. Now, I don't know when this podcast is going to go live. However, um, you know, this could have been this could be resolved by the time you're hearing this is what I'm trying to say. But we are currently at the time of the of the recording of this podcast, we're going through some issues with some account strikes and it's related to reloading content. Mm -hmm. And we've actually we self we voluntarily deleted 40 videos and then we privatized almost another like 60 or 70 so there's a huge chunk of our of our catalog, like 10% of our catalog basically right now is down for the count over some bullcrap with YouTube, right. applying yeah. their policies unfairly to me in a way that they're not applying it to other people. Even right. people who right. are considered on my side, they're not applying that policy even evenly to our group of people. Yeah. They're only targeting me. And that's one of the big problems with, with companies like YouTube is just like the level of sort of uh, randomness that with which they apply a lot of their standards. Like I think people would be more understanding if they were more consistent. Right. Um, you, uh, you know, and obviously that, that policy about not being able to show reloading or uh, quote unquote manufacturing of firearms, like it's just a, a very odd policy to begin with because it's like, what are you like? I don't think they're really accomplishing much. You're not going to be able to hide away the, how that stuff works just because YouTube occasionally deletes a video here or there of someone putting together an AR or reloading, uh, you know, ammunition, uh, or shotgun shells for that matter. And it's like, what good is this serving? I like, what uh, is it meaning the, cause you know, these come from, you know, terrible situations of like people 
streaming themselves killing people or whatever, right? That's that's supposed that's what these are meant to be responsive to. But right. how does that help? And I don't see any way in which it does. And what it ends up doing is hurting, you know, guys like you who are just trying to show people how to reload ammunition, which is a super common thing to do in the United States. And there's nothing wrong with it, nothing illegal about it, uh, nothing immoral about it. Well, especially when there's entire reloading channels and that's all they do and they're not getting any strikes. And it's the consistency. So they're clearly targeting me for somebody is targeting me for some reason. Specifically, I'm being singled out. Well, the only, I'm the only person it's happening to. Hmm. Well, interestingly, if they're gonna if they're gonna you know stand on that hill and say, well, you know, we don't want to we don't want to have you know reloading because it's considered manufacturing. I'm certainly not suggesting I want them to go after other channels. No, no not at, not at all. But if you look at that mindset, you know, when you, you one argument could say, you could use is like, well, we don't want you know because they're a global they're a global website. They don't want other countries knowing how to do this okay well if that's the case they can block content based on country they do that all the time right but let's just say for example you're using that same argument for like training you know there's a lot there's a lot of like former military guys that won't put training on youtube for that very reason they don't want other countries and even like terrorist organizations to see how that training is taking place but there are trainers that do that but they don't go and they don't try to remove that content on the same basis. So you have, let's just say, and used a great analogy previously, not in this podcast, but just in general, about you know, yeah, one is the battery. So bullets would be like the batteries of this. It just doesn't make sense that you're going to try to remove the batteries, but not remove the actual training. And I'm not saying you should. I'm just saying if you're going to look at it from a high level. If you're trying yeah, to it remove, doesn't make sense. yeah. If you're trying to yeah. remove content, you have to be, I guess, equal across the board. But they're not. They're saying we're just taking away this particular content from mm-hmm. this particular creator. Well, I know that I say this all the time, and it's an overused term that I use on the podcast. And I actually kind of stole this term from you because when we were doing the talk about our youth, and I was talking about like the character of James Bond, you're like, you're getting into the soul of James Bond. Yeah. Well, I use that now, so. To get into the soul of this situation, right, the way that I would look at it, the deeper meaning to me personally, what I see as just as a guy, is that it's more about being in the brokering of information and power. Knowledge is power. That's a good point. They don't want knowledge to be spread in a such a way that helps our side in any way, shape, or form. And I believe that the greater evil is when you suppress knowledge, you're suppressing something that can give someone that you disagree with some form of power. Now, even if that power is simple as being self-sufficient on your own ammo supply and being able to make your own ammo, they view that as a power that they... I And maybe there's not some evil intent at the highest levels in like YouTube's hierarchy or whatever, yeah. but you get the feeling that it's like, well, dang, this is a power move because they're trying to limit knowledge. And in the society that we've created today and the way that knowledge is so readily spread out, it seems almost counterproductive to what the internet is meant to accomplish in the first place to begin with, especially when you add the microcosm or actually macrocosm of this huge social media outlet that you can get on YouTube and find a video on how to do anything. Right. So when you're excluded from that, your knowledge is not welcome here. That's the deeper meaning. Yeah, that is much it, scarier. It definitely goes against their general ethos that they they put out there about what 
what they're it supposed to be about, what it. social media is supposed to be about, um, specifically what YouTube is supposed to be about, which is just like expanding knowledge and, and sharing knowledge. And it's it's like it's one thing if if something that there is being posted there is illegal, um, you know, then sure, I, you know, obviously you, you you don't want people to. Um, you don't want guides to making IEDs or something on YouTube. Sure. Um, but when we're talking about reloading again, like it's not, it's not illegal. It's not immoral. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just, I think, uh, you know, these, it's a lack of understanding from people who make these decisions for one, uh, like the, again, like they're going back to problems of trying to stop people from live streaming killings, you know, that how is, how is this related to that at all? It's really not just, it's just, they think it's bad PR for the, for someone to be able to, to put together, to, to go and be able to find a video to put together an ammo or, or a gun. Um, They're concerned about and, some shooter leaving a manifesto and saying, I learned how to do this on YouTube. And all of a yeah, sudden there's some PR nightmare. For right. Them. That's, that's probably where they come from, but it's like, yeah. How does, I don't know, it, well, it just it would doesn't be seem one like thing, it would actually have any impact in real life. Right. It would be one thing if, let's say I'd only been on YouTube for six months, and they didn't know if they could trust this guy to be reliable to not post heinous bullcrap or right. not. I've been on YouTube 13 years. I think it's safe to say that I'm not going to post some bullcrap. I mean, if, if I don't earn any bit of street credit after 13 years with a platform that I helped develop, a platform that I'm invested in, like I've spent my blood, sweat, and tears to grow my YouTube channel and to uh, and to ultimately grow YouTube as a platform. I have a vested interest in that platform. Mm. Like who YouTube is today is directly related to people like me. I'm not saying me exclusively, but people like me, sure. many like me. Yeah. And I feel like I'm a tiny part of that. Now, granted, it may not matter to them and they may not care, but I care. And I care about the knowledge that we try to spread out on our YouTube channel because I feel like that knowledge is a direct sort of pivot for why a certain group of people within our country are pro-gun who might not have been pro-gun before. I can't tell you how many emails I get from people that are like, hey, I saw your video about XYZ, whatever it may be, and you know what? It changed my mind. I was a little bit neutral before, but now I get it. Yeah. So they don't want people to have that aha moment. They want people to be in the dark, and they know that people like me are standing in the way of that. Well, that's the thing. You have to, you hit the nail on the head. You have too much street cred. So you're the there. It's not that they they are worried about you. They're worried about you in the in the wrong way. They're worried about you having too much power to provide a message to to your. Yeah, they don't want you your, in control of your own audience. Right. They they want to broker. It, it seems like these large social media companies have gotten more into the power brokering uh, business than they have the business of people just being people. They've removed the human aspect of it, and they've turned it into a, okay, how can we sell this data? How can we manipulate this, manipulate that in order to accomplish a power grab? Now that we've built this huge global empire, now let's remove the human from the equation, and let's find out how we can monetize them and how we can use them for power brokering. And that's I think what that's, it's all about. I think it definitely goes back a lot, especially in YouTube's case, to um, this idea of not wanting PR nightmares for them, not scaring away advertisers. And so that a lot of the stuff they've done over the last decade or so uh, with content ID and, and a lot of the policy changes they've made is all goes to not scaring away, um, you know, the advertisers. And because you've had like a number of, 
the biggest YouTubers have had scandals like PewDiePie and, and a number of other people. And, and, you know, there's been a lot of like low level creepy, you know, illegal stuff posted on, on YouTube over the years. And so they're, they're always thinking like, how do we get ahead of this? How do we, um, prevent the next big PR breakup? And so they like to focus on promoting like your corporate, um, you know, content like the late night shows and stuff, they get pushed a lot. Um, and they don't care as much about the people who really did build the platform like you and like any number of huge longtime YouTubers, you know, you hear the same kinds of complaints from them about, um, monetization, about, about their old videos, getting strikes about all kinds of stuff that happens that YouTube, it's always, it always seems like they just don't really care that much about, the people that make content specifically for YouTube. I mean, all I got to do is dip into the last 13 years of content and read comments, look at all the metadata. They, they've got algorithms that they can run to know, like, I bet they even have like a reliability algorithm that can tell them like, Hey, you know, this person hasn't had X amount of complaints, hasn't had X amount of dislikes. They know algorithmically that I'm not, you know, a turd, right? Hmm. So that's the issue is like after 13 years, you would think that they would be like, Hey, give this guy a break. I mean, he's obviously not going to post some beheading video maybe or some they will. bull crap. I mean, hopefully they do. Eventually. Well, let's hope they do. I but I mean, they... gosh, it's like, how long do you got to, well, how I long think... you got to do it before you, you, you get at least a, a confirmation of, of Hey, this guy's, yeah. this, this guy's all right. You know, yeah. leave him alone. I don't, I don't think they're, they're worried about that. I think that there's a handful of, um, content creators that, are m- more advocates and political, uh, politically active uh, than others. So, I mean, you're you're using your platform as uh, one to help spread a message and be more of an advocate. You're willing. You understand that there's videos there. You're not. It's not clickbaity. You know, you're not. You're not getting into like. You're not getting into it just for the views. You're, I'm using my voice to actually make a difference exactly. instead of just a, a means to an end. And that's like what they're an worried about. Or something. That, that's yeah. what they're worried about. Uh, but I don't want to feel, I don't want this to turn into like this YouTube bashing video because obviously you. I care about the platform. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you, you, like you said, you're vest, you're, a, you have a vested interest in the success of YouTube and the success of your channel. Absolutely. So, um, what I really wanted to talk about was, so we understood how uh, you got into guns and mm-hmm. shooting, uh, Steve. We understand how you got into guns and shooting, Eric. Uh, and I, got, I gave my side of the story. And it's all different because you got in and your college years. So you were yeah, already after college. Yeah. After college yeah. So you were, you were much older than both Eric and I. Uh, Eric was uh, in at a much younger age, shooting at the age of four, took his first bucket eight, <laughs> uh, skinned him. Wore his hide around the house <laughs> in a glorious fashion. Uh, Walking my- around with deer underwear on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I myself... Coonskin uh, cap. You oh, know? yeah, man. <laughs> um, I myself got in at a young age, but didn't actually start shooting till I joined the military. But I was kind of into guns um, the whole time through my youth. You respected them. I respected them. Yeah. And I, what I want to see from everybody or ask of everybody is how we progress and get the youth into shooting because we kind of cover the gamut of when at different stages in life that we got into it what can we do to get youth in there and start doing it respectfully and and shooting 
That's I think it's definitely a cultural approach that we've got, you know, to change the way that gun laws are written and proposed in a, in a given country, such as here, you know, here, mm-hmm. here in our in our country, we have to have a cultural change. It must occur. You have to change gun culture then, and you change the attitude and you change the mindset, you change the culture. Then the laws, the good laws that we want come along with the, the, the uptick in positive mm-hmm. gun culture. Yeah, no, I, I think that's absolutely true. Um, and that's what makes the all these new gun owners that we've seen over the last six months here uh, really intriguing, I think, in the long term. Like, it's not, there's so much going on with this election in particular in 2020 that uh, it's not clear that somebody who just bought a gun because they're afraid for their safety, you know, in, in June is immediately going to switch to, you know, from, from being a Democrat to a Republican mm-hmm. in, in a couple months. Uh, that's not necessarily realistic, I think. But you can be a Democrat gun owner. And oh, that, absolutely. And that's perfectly fine. And, and there fact, certainly are a lot of them. And yeah. that's one thing you want to see um, from, I mean, this is more of a political end like like uh, Eric was talking about, but what you really want to see, I think, as a gun rights advocate in the United States is the issue of guns move away from being a partisan issue, which is what it's become over the last several decades here as Democrats have moved further and further to the left on the issue. And I mean, not, not, I don't know that Republicans have moved too much to the other direction, but, but it's certainly become something where it's Both much sides harder. Not, not handle it like a hot potato. Like, Oh no, we don't want to get on that issue because they know it'll polarize their voter base even across both political spectrums. Sure. Potentially. But, but you potentially. want, but if you want like to see a more robust, uh, gun rights movement moving forward and you want to see the the potential for more gun rights legislation and less gun control legislation what you want to see is more democrats supporting the issue like they used to be years ago um i mean if you look at the the rate that like if you just take the nra um you know ratings as just a, a an objective measure of how things have moved you've seen a lot fewer democrat endorsements from them over the years. And you could argue on one hand, maybe that's maybe the group is becoming more part partisan, but I think it's more a reflection of the parties becoming more uh, partisan on the issue. And so you see fewer Democrats who have positions that are pro gun. And, and there's probably and, a lot of Democrats that can't even take a position because they know it'll light a fire under their parties sure. but that they can't, you know, they can't deal with the fallout from that. I think what you want to see is less, you know, hoping for all those 5 million new gun owners to become like straight Republican ticket voters on every issue and more that they'll perhaps be convinced that gun control is, is not uh, what they want, or they want, you know, more gun rights legislation and maybe they don't have to change. They don't necessarily have to change their minds on everything else. Um, But if they can get, if you get enough democratic voters who say, we don't want, you know, these sort of assault weapons bans or, uh, you know, the registration of guns or, or things like that. Um, you can, ha- you can see a, a real impact on the long term on politics because democratic politicians will respond to that eventually if it's strong enough. Um, uh, but as far as youth involvement, um, cause that's, that's, that's like a, a, another question too. And, and one that can lead into the other, right? If you, the more, young shooters you get involved or more young people you get involved in sh- in shooting uh the more likely they are to be 
uh, involved later in life too, when they become voters and, right. and that can have a political impact, obviously. And I think um, what you've seen actually in youth shooting over the last couple decades is a lot more um, like organized school-based teams, yeah, which I think is collegiate teams is helping. Like yeah, yeah. I, I think you know uh, even high school-based teams. You know, I, I profiled a, a 15-year-old um, shooter named Mia Farinelli, and she lives where I live. You know, um, Alexandria, Virginia. It's it's a 20 minutes outside of DC. It's you know, it's it's certainly not a rural area. It's a suburban, exurban kind of kind of area, and you know, she she's a competitive shooter. Uh, her dad was a competitive shooter before her, and and got her involved, and and you know, she shoots on on club teams. And <coughs> sorry, I think that's that's an area where you can see a lot more growth um, among young younger shooters getting involved, and in. even you know, even air rifle teams. Uh, at high schools uh, can can help you get into the the experience. Absolutely. Um, And I think that's, that's one. And then obviously like, you know, parents obviously can uh, help bring their children uh, into, into the shooting sports responsibly. You know, that as you see more parents becoming gun owners, you probably see more kids getting involved, getting knowledgeable about it at the very least. Um, and so, you know, I think there's a lot that can be done in that way. I think supporting the, the like you shooting organizations is something that your average person, your average gun owner can do to actually bring new younger people into, into the sport, into the hobby, into, you know, into gun ownership. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great uh, gateway for youth. Uh, and I'll say a shout out to uh, Cheyenne Dalton, which is one of our partners, a yep. competitive shooter. Nice young lady. I think she just started uh, university uh, in uh, Missouri, I believe. Um, but, you know, uh, I think that, and I said youth specifically because I, I was a martial artist when I was a younger kid, uh, up until my, like, you know, lower teens. Um, and the parents might not be, uh, you know, they might not be gun people, but when they, if they, if you start like a youth shooting team and they do some great stuff with 22s, like, like uh, precision 22 or long range mm-hmm. 22 stuff. Yeah. Or even air rifle programs or even well. air rifle. But if you get that kid out there and they're super excited and they're like, Hey mom, Hey dad, you know, we're going to, it's time to go. We need to go. I'm going to be late for, you know, this, uh, this club and get them kind of get, get them going. But also they see the, the, their child mature much faster. I mean, you have to have a certain level of maturity, uh, to do it. And as they learn and as they grow, they understand to respect it. And it's not a, it's not a toy. And then the parents see that and they go, I really see the growth of my child, um, from being in this club or this shooting organization. Uh, if it's the same as martial arts, you have to you know, you have to have A's on your report card to shoot. So, yeah, you can come and you can learn, but you're not going to get to compete because your grades just aren't up to par. Right. And when they see that change, they will say, you know, this has really helped my child. And, yeah. it, and it, might, think, it might change their minds as well. I think well. It, ref- it can reframe what guns are for people, too. Yeah. Because, like, your average person, uh, you know, might be af- afraid of guns because they associate them with, with violence, right? And, mm-hmm. and that's the only thing they associate them with. And they don't realize that there are so many other uses for firearms besides 
um, you know, in, in gang violence, right? Which is what you hear about guns being yeah. used in guns most, bad. the most part. If you don't know a lot about guns, you don't own a gun, you don't know gun owners, you, you probably just hear about people getting shot on the news or whatever, or mass shootings. And that's your frame of reference for guns or TV and movies where, you know, it's, it's criminals and cops who have guns. Uh, that's a common frame you hear from, from a lot of, uh, uh, you know, inner city, uh, people who, who grew up not owning guns and then got right. into it later, you know, they, they just thought of guns as something that were for cops and criminals and, and they don't have that frame of reference of what you could, what you could actually use a gun for, for competition, for, mm-hmm. for, uh, enjoyment, um, beyond, you know, even your own self-defense or hunting. And that's another, you know, so people either think, oh, cops are criminals or hunters, right? That's, that's what right. guns are for. That's it. I don't want, I don't want to be involved in any three of those things. So, uh, I have no use for firearms and maybe I think they're even bad because, you know, yeah. criminals, a lot of criminals having to kill people with them. But if you can reframe that, uh, especially like through youth shooting um, mm-hmm. and you have the advantage of the fact that competition shooting is a lot of fun. Like I know we were talking about earlier, you know, re- reactive targets um, as like a big way to get someone involved because reactive targets can be, can be so much fun. But I mean, shooting a paper can be a lot of fun, too. I don't want to undercount you can that shoot for groups and it's, fun. you know, Trying you know. to, trying to, when you're competing and you're shooting at a target and you're trying to hit that bullseye, uh, or you're trying to beat someone else's yeah, score. Yeah, especially under pressure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, there's a reason that people do competitive shoot. It's fun. So yeah. you guys really covered some, some great ideas and there's not a heck of a lot that I can add to anything that you guys were talking about, you know, just now. And I think that that's a, a great way to close the conversation because uh, we are kind of, we are running a little bit long on time. That's fine. Um, this one's a little longer than normal. The only thing that I'll add is that um, I believe with our youth in regards to firearms and getting them involved at a young age, I think one important aspect that we have to make sure that we keep in mind as well, I mean, all the things y'all talked about are super important. I'll just add that when you get people involved in anything at a young age, doesn't matter what it is, whether it's guns, whether it's equestrian, you know, okay, your your little girl's going to ride horses, your little girl's going to learn how to be a ballerina, or your little boy's going to learn how to be a Boy Scout, whatever it may be. Whatever your first entry is into responsibility, uh, your entry into something that is something your folks pass down to you, right? Like in my case, my family were all hunters. They were all gun owners. I believe that there's a nostalgia aspect that is associated in that child at that point, not to mention a certain type of passion that surrounds that particular venture, that they will never have in their adult life with anything else that they didn't experience at a young age. So that's why it's important to get young people involved in guns at a young age, because they grow up to be people who are passionate and have an emotional attachment to that activity because they went out and went hunting with their grandpa who, you know, maybe now their grandpa's gone and they remember the days of hunting with their grandpa in the blind, the way the air smelled that day, you know, uh, the blood stain that's still on their clothes from when they were with their grandpa and they didn't wash it off. You know, those little like passions that we attach and those emotional attachments that we have to certain activities, those ideas can't foster and grow if we don't start them real young. So I believe that's one of the most important things we can do is get our youth involved in shooting because then there's an emotional attachment to the activity. And then later on, when some politician, okay, this kid is now, you know, 20, 30 years old or whatever, and some politician is saying, oh, we're going to take your guns away. They're like, well, wait a minute. Why would you? Hell no. We're not going to deal with that because 
they then they have an emotional reason, although a good reason to be emotional, right? Mm-hmm. Is is when someone's trying to take your guns away. Obviously, there's a reason for being you know vocal about that, but it gives them more of a reason to go. You know what? I don't support this crap because I grew up in this environment and I turned out okay, and I'm not crazy, and and it just makes it normal to them. So. Um, we've got a lot more podcasts on the way. Make sure you guys tune in every Friday here on Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit. Uh, I hate to cut, but you know we, we're getting kind of close on time here. Got to scoot. Yeah, we got to scoot. Get on to other things. We will have Stephen back, I'm sure, if he's willing to be back. Uh, appreciate you being on our podcast with us. Yeah, this is great. Absolutely. So uh, make sure you follow Stephen Gatowski uh, there on Twitter. Make sure you follow the Washington Free Beacon um, over there. Great group of people unbiased um, reporting really good solid journalism definitely something you need to look into Uh, have a great one we'll see you guys next time any more on the way bye everybody thanks for listening to life liberty and pursuit if you enjoyed the show be sure to subscribe on apple podcasts spotify and anywhere else podcasts are found be sure to leave us a five-star review we'd really appreciate that you can support us over on ballistic inc by picking yourself up some merch and remember guys Dangerous freedom. Have a good one.